There was still a little of that bleed over from the 90s from the Jamaicans that were still down there in South Dallas. They just, if you worked the Southeast and you had an old school trainer, they all told you those stories about how ruthless and violent the Jamaicans were. So they were still down there. But when I started doing the gang and stuff, I, I found that it came pretty easy to me because I, growing up on the streets and knowing that stuff, I was like, I, I like this. this. I like doing this. This is fun. Getting nicknames, getting faces, putting names with faces. And you're developing like an intel, intel for, this, for these guys, keeping track of where they're from and all that. Um, and then, you know, I kind of had everything all over the place. And then I met Norm and he kind of got me squared away on how I needed to do stuff and, and how to talk to people. Um, I think the biggest thing from the gang was learning how to talk to people. I just heard what sounded like three automatic gunfire, gunshots. And then I looked down at my left leg. My left leg looks like the scene of the cover of Iron Maiden on the time traveler. Immediately, like, the training kicks in. When I got to SWAT and I started doing that stuff, I, I, I mentally prepared myself for whenever I would get shot. And that's one thing that I did learn from several operators. Not the if, but the when. Now, it's not if you get shot, it's when you get shot. I'm like, well, this is it. Just got shot. So start putting on the tourniquet. Um, so I'm fighting the shock that's trying to set in. Second, I'm trying to fight the, the thoughts in my head. Am I going to die? Am I not? Am I not going to get to see my kids? Am I going to say bye to Lisa? So that mindset then, it turned into fight mode. Fight mode. Like, I got to make it to the hospital. I got to make it to the hospital. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisted Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, all the ATO listeners. I'm Misty Van Curen. I'm here today with Joe King and Sergeant Josh Fertel. And of course, we have a guest host today, Matt Baines. Thank you for coming. And today's episode is a tribute to one of the Dallas's true warriors. Uh, he was born and raised in East Dallas and attended Woodrow Wilson High School and then later went to Dallas Baptist University where he played soccer as a goalkeeper. He hired on the Dallas Police Department in 2000 and spent his first four years in patrol at, you guessed it, Southeast. Southeast. (laughs) Uh, He contributed five years with our prestigious gang unit in a time where that unit was hard-charging and considered the go-to group to find our most sought-after criminals in the city. Uh, The following decade, he was an operator in SWAT as a member of the Dirty 30s squad. And he is currently a detective for the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. Our guest is riddled with vigor. I have personally witnessed an inextinguishable effort, energy, and enthusiasm for police work his entire career. He's never faltered. 
during his tenure, our guest has lost a beloved teammate in battle, has proven durable, healing from a horrific injury, and faced grief and pain with resilience. As a teammate, I pulled a favorite excerpt from the book In Search of the Warrior Spirit uh, by author Richard Strozzi Heckler. I feel it gives a true insight into our guest today. The team to us is everything. It's the main thing. We share everything together. It's family. It's closer than my own family. There is nothing I wouldn't do for any of my team members, nothing at all. Our bonding has to do with life and death. We share everything, including our fears. And I feel like this paints a great picture of our guests. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a lifesaver in 2018, a father of three, a lifelong teammate and brother, Detective Darian Loera. Whoa. <laughs> Man. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a heck of an intro. I'm going to have to record that and use that whenever I do any speaking. Thank you. It's more than Matt got. <clears throat> Definitely more than Matt got. Yeah, he would, that's because he wanted to do it shirtless, and uh, we were thrown off by that. Oh, I, I was yeah. distracted. Yeah, Misty was very distracted and looked incredible. Um, Darian, I've known you since you got to uh, Southeast. Um, we're going to jump right into that. How was it when you got Southeast? You worked at the jail, right, before? Yes, sir. Okay. When you hit Southeast... What did you get into, and what group did you start running with? I, kind of, I think I vaguely remember. So, getting, you know, obviously in the academy, I wanted to go to Central because that's where I grew up, and that's where I was more comfortable. I landed, when you put your wish list, you get, you know, I put Central, and I think I had like Southeast towards the bottom. But So I got Southeast. Um, I get there. My I started on days. My first phase, my first trainer was, was on days, and, we get there, and he's like, hey, where are you from? I'm from Dallas, Texas, born and raised here. So his question is like, do you know where Jim Miller is? I said, row right there, Buckner, right over there, Lake June, right over there. He's like, okay, you're driving. <laughs> and uh, it's a shout-out to Myron Scott. Um, so right out the back, you know, um, I see this big, big dude, you know, looks heavy set, and I thought, man, all we're going to do is, like, eat all day. And that was the <laughs> most opposite um, description of what Myron Scott was. I mean, that dude was a hustler, and I worked um, my butt off on training on first phase incredibly. Um, and I learned a lot from Myron. So when I got to Southeast, um, I realized, man, this this is a great station. I mean, there was, even on days, there, you, you had car chases on days, foot chases on days, um, just all kinds of good stuff happening. And then I get, to, I finish up training, I get sent to evenings. Um, and it was like days times 10, because now you, you would go to jail like three times a day on a felony and, um, you know, you get off late and, um, you, you talk to your, you, you know, you go back and you talk to your academy classmates that go to other channels and stuff like that, the other stations. And they don't, they're like, there's no way. And you're like, oh yeah, no, really. I mean, stuff literally falls in your lap over there. I mean, you just, Sometimes without even trying, you, you, you get into something and, and it's in your, your jail. So I learned a lot from Southeast. I made some great friends, Joe, Josh, uh, Misty, obviously Matt. We, we met each other later. Um, but I, I had nothing but the utmost respect for, for Southeast. You know, um, I think when I first got there, you know, there was an old head that said, you know, he mentioned it. They, they used to nickname it like Fort Apache back in the 90s. And it's like a 
it's like a nickname that was given from like a East Coast um, station where like it's like the most dangerous, the most, you know, crime, you know, written station. It was known as Fort Apache. So back in the 90s, that's kind of what it was nicknamed. And um, man, it, it lived up to its name. I mean, there was, you know, I did every possible arrest out there. Um, I saw plenty of dead bodies out there. Um, and I, I definitely had more than just my share of car chases. That, that was definitely fun. What's the best squad car for Ooh. a car chase? <laughs> the on. best, well, so Element 328 had probably the best squad car for a car chase. Um, <laughs> Josh already knows. Um, so when I when I was on deep nights, my training cycle on deep nights, um, I rode with the with the uh, my trainer, um, Wendell, uh, Wendell Jones. Um, somehow this Crown Vic, um, you know, when you're academy, they say the the Crown Vic has a governor, so it cuts off at like once you get to 100 miles an hour or something. But it felt like this car um, did not stop at 100 miles an hour; like it could, it would just go like 120. And it just it would just fly, and no matter what you got into, whether you bottomed out the bottom of it or ran over a you know the middle of the center concrete median, that car just kept coming back every single time. It like would never die out. Um, I remember we we I I bottomed it out and all that, and I thought I broke it and everything. And like a week later, once I came back from my days off, there it was back in the Sally Port, ready to go again. It was a Ford Crown Vic. I thought know? you were and gonna. Uh mentioned the uh, Ken Strauss uh, Caprice that always smelled like <laughs> dead animals and the 94 yes yeah. and it and it ran great and well you know the, the other great one was the seat. um the Dodge Intrepid that um I think we had a, we had like two and <laughs> and we were like on Buckner chasing a car for somebody and, and the, the bad guy does a u-turn and everybody does u-turns and the guy that was um, those, I think one has gone to the U S marshals. Now he, he tried to do a U-turn on the center median of it. And it, it just got stuck right in the middle of it, like a seesaw. So we're all passing him up, waving at him like, you're stuck and we're gone. Um, so yeah, that was, a, that was pretty fun. Kind of times you wish he did have a, a camera to get a picture of that. And that was, yeah. it was pretty epic. When you were at Southeast, what was, is there any incidents or arrests that stand out to you? I know we had a lot of fun, but what? What happened out there that kind of just stood out to you as far as stuck with you? Um, you know, I'll see running with, with, with you, Pat, and uh, Sergeant Misak. Jaime and that group. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Team Castro, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was fun. Um, you learned a lot. Um, biggest thing that I, that I gravitate to you guys to run with you guys and, and wanted to run, uh, get into stuff with you guys because – you guys worked as a team. It was it was a team, and when you grow up playing in a team environment, like I, I played soccer for a long time, I played baseball, basketball growing up. Um, you know, my mindset was as a teammate and be a team. So when I saw how you guys did stuff and worked as a team, I, I immediately gravitated towards towards you guys. It was kind of like, hey, can I please get in a car with you guys one day? And and um, I think. Um, like anything else, like a team, it's like you guys kind of let me do a little bit and then a little bit more, and then eventually, you know, we, we would do, you know, guys finally let me start getting into the squad and stuff. So um, that was – I learned a lot through that. I mean, you we we did a lot. We did some great arrests. You know, I had um, 
you know, we went from a couple of crack rocks on the in a house and a car to multi kilo deals. You know, I never, I never thought I'd ever stop a car that had, you know, eight kilos in it. You know, I think we did a stop one time for the, you know, DEA had a tip, and we, you know, we. We were flying all over the place, and we stopped the car. I think Mario, Mario Gomez and myself, and got kilos out of it. Um, that was that was definitely a memorable arrest. Being able to get that much drugs off the street. Well, that it seemed like that springboarded you for the rest of your career of, of what came after Southeast. You went to the gang, and then you go to SWAT, and then now you, you know you've always been involved in a team setting. And you know we're going to get into uh, some more of those and. Um, I would like to get into your or how you started gang, and can you tell us about that process is when you applied for gang and how that went, and what did the gang unit mean to you uh, to make you want to apply? And I, I want you to describe how the gang unit was back then. Okay. So when I was in Southeast, um, I was approached one time um, by a lieutenant, and he said, hey, the gang unit is doing this thing. It's called a liaison program. And um, you'll you'll come out here and you'll ride ride out with some of these gang unit guys and you'll work with them. Um, basically, you'll be their their the contact guy between patrol and the gang unit. Whenever the gang unit's not here, you'll go to shootings, get gang cards, and start trying to get some information for them. And and um, so you were like a part time, you were part of the gang unit like a part time team. Um, so when I did that, um, I started meeting some of the gang guys, B.K. Nelson, Norm Smith, um, Leroy Quigg, and those were the main ones that were down there. So whenever shooting would, would come out, whether it was in, um, you know, at the time, Southeast covered South Oak Cliff, Pleasant Grove, South Dallas. So any shootings that would happen, we would I would go out there with, with uh, whoever was riding with me and, you know, I was just out there learning the, the, um, the craft of the, the streets, you know, um, I knew I knew the gang stuff growing up because I grew up in East Dallas, so I knew some of the gang stuff. But it was very different um, once you did it from the police aspect of it because it was it was a little, um, you know, it it wasn't just a couple of a couple guys just doing something crazy on a Friday night. I mean, there was there was. I got a question. What were the active gangs when you first went to the gang unit? The most active in the city of Dallas. So. You know, like for me growing up, like Eastside Locos were like the most, and Ovario were like the most active Hispanic gangs that I knew growing up, especially through the high school. They were like the ones that was kind of rattling each other. Um, the projects, the Fraser Courts were the 415 Bloods. They were just, you know, a lot of red, um, hardcore. Um, there was still a little of that bleed over from the 90s from the Jamaicans that were still down there, South Dallas. They just historically, I think. If you worked the Southeast and you had an old school trainer, they all told you those stories about how ruthless and violent the Jamaicans were. So they were still down there. Um, but when I started doing the gang and stuff, I, I found that um, it came pretty easy to me because I, growing up on the streets and knowing that stuff, I found that I I, I was like, I, I like this. this. I like doing this. This is fun. Um, getting nicknames, getting faces, putting names with faces. And you're developing like an intel, intel for this for these guys, keeping track of where they're from and all that. Um, and then, you know, I kind of had everything all over the place. And then I met Norm and he kind of got me squared away on how I needed to do stuff and um, and how to talk to people. Um, I think the biggest thing from the gang and it was learning how to talk to people. 
you know. Well, <clears throat> in Dallas, uh, back then, even to this day now, there's always a nexus with, with really all the crimes, uh, whether it's uh, organized theft or drug dealing or assaults or homicides. There's The majority of it goes back to, to gangs. And, um, you know, there's... Uh, and, and back then, the gang unit was looked at. It was as far as specialized unit was really the cream of the crop. Uh, you had you had Norm Norm Smith and and Quig was over there, and you and and uh, <clears throat> Matt Baines uh, was over there too, uh, and Tina. That there was that was like that was the pinnacle of a specialized unit. You mentioned Norm, and Norm was he was the guy. He was the running. The, he was running the show. He was the best at his job over there, and everybody pretty much followed suit. And they wanted to be like him, and also they wanted to basically please him and, and do a good job, and not not disrespect him or, or disrespect that unit. Is that is that is that right? That's a good description of Norm. That is yep. that is. Um, Norm was very different from most. Um, because of his appearance, big, tall, big blue eyes, um, and his swagger of how he approached people. You know, um, although he may just come across as, you know, just a little relaxed, a little laid back with, with when we're talking to gangsters, but he did it so that he would build that rapport with them, you know. And um, it's funny because, um, uh, you know, if you ever watch that movie Colors, I mean, it's in a, epitome of norm smith you know i mean i remember he you know there's that one scene where robert duvall is talking to sean penn and he's telling us like look you come out here and you fight every motherfucker out here try to throw everybody in jail at the end of the day you're the only one mad well he would drive that point say look you can come out and try to fight everybody at the end of the day you're the only one that's gonna be pissed if you come on your wife's gonna divorce you you're gonna end up in a you know in a shit house and it's just not gonna be good and he was big on building that rapport, which is another thing that gangsters would make fun of Hodges, which was, um, which was Robert Duvall. You know, they're like, you still with that rapport shit, Hodges? And you know what? It, it worked. It, it worked with Norm. So we, you know, so I, I modeled my, a lot of the stuff I did in the gang after him. I know um, Chief Schultz, Tina Schultz did mm -hmm. the same. We were partners for the, pretty much my whole time I was down there. Um, and we did, and, and we, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, and Norm had a lot of connections in the community, not just gangsters but i mean you know community leaders and stuff like that so he would meet a lot of people even after we would get off work he'd go to these community meetings and meet with people and stuff like that and get information um i think the most impressive stuff that you could always get um and there was a guy on patrol that i when i was there troy klingelsmith was just incredibly talented at just going to these these little homes, man, in South Dallas and talking to people and, and having coffee with, with, with the little ladies and finding out where the crime is, that was the same thing that Norm did. You know, it was, it was something that we kind of got away from now in policing, you know. Yeah, well, they were doing community policing before it was the thing. They now, did. Now we're pushing it <clears throat> nationwide, and they were actually doing it before it was even really created. Correct. Um, yeah, clear about about Klingle. He, he was incredible. Uh, that's what it took, though. You're, you're Norman. Norm went and got intel from actually people that had their ear to the ground in the community. They were the ones being terrorized by by these gang members, and and, and they were 
having to live amongst the the violence and the drug dealing, and um, and Norm recognized that, and he actually went out and and embraced the community, and they embraced him back. Correct. Yeah, I mean, um, he had a lot of respect for a lot of gang, gang members. You know, he, he did they, because they knew that um, you know there was he had a job to do, and they they were doing their thing. Um, so it, you know. When 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 be out out of the round, just you pull up. There's a bunch of gangsters there, like on a corner behind a convenience store or something. And you pull up, you and Norm jump out, and they all kind of get on their knees. And one guy says, "Hey, I, I got a gun on me," you know. And it, it was just it was like the it was like a compliment of how just his presence, you know, just went through the community about these guys knew knew better. They knew not to, you know, not to test it test the waters. Some did, did, some did. Um, and that's where guys like myself and, and, uh, Jeremy Foy, Craig Redden went to ATF. That's where we came in. We just, man, we were like pit bulls. Some dude ran and it was, it was on. The foot chase was on. Um, we really were the Trump monkeys for Norm. I mean, he's like, yeah, go get him. And Norm would run back to the car and, and get, get the car. Um, but that was the, that was the fun part. I, I still think there's nothing more fun than just a, hellacious car chase that ends up in a foot chase over some fences and just test everything that you have, you know, and you, I think that's, that's still to me, that's the fun, the most fun of adrenaline dump you, you could probably ever get. It, street cop it is, it really old, is. Old fashioned street cop. It's old fashioned street cop, man. I, I, I always had enjoyed that. Didn't homicide go to you guys when you were gang unit and all the suspects they were looking for, weren't you guys the go-to to, to find them for them? Correct. Um, there was a chief at one point um, that was over us, and he he said, "Hey, you know, I appreciate these drugs and guns and money all are bringing to me, but you know what I'd like to see is um, remember the gang file is is our bread and butter. Um, our goal is if a homicide detective walks in here with a nickname or a tattoo, that he walks out here with the true name of a suspect." And that became our goal, was to be sure that the gang file was up-to-date, current, pictures, um, tattoos if need be, and and we would do that. Um, and not just homicide. I mean, we had federal agents, um, you know, detectives. We, we had everybody. I mean, we... The biggest compliment I still get to this day, and it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a great compliment, is when... Um, you come across these retired officers and or de- especially these homicide detectives or capers detectives that say, Hey man, you know, when you guys were in the gang and, and you guys were great, you guys were, you guys took care of business. You, you guys did the job. So, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It, it was, I, I really, yeah, I had nothing but fun. My, my years in the gang and it, it was, it was definitely something that, you know, that I wanted to do. It's kind of one of those places where I wanted to go when I joined this department, and I'm glad I went. And and um, every single guy that was there, including um, Tina Schultz, um, I, I, I still nothing but the utmost respect for them. I still talked to a lot of them, still friends with them. Um, but it's just, it was something different. It was something unique. You know, we may never, we'll probably never get to that again. I don't know. But it was just a lot of fun to have those people. Um and we were all close. We really were. Um, back then, you, if you asked me somebody's name, I could tell you wife's name, kids' names, and all that, you know. Um, 
when I got married to my wife, Lisa, you know, they all came to my wedding. Um, so that was, that was pretty neat. Um, <clears throat> one of the final memories of Norm <clears throat> is of him at my wedding. <laughs> and typical Norm fashion, he's got like four plates of sliced cake in his hand. <laughs> you know, and I'm like on a dance floor with Lisa dancing and I see Norm just dancing on his own back to his chair with like four slices of cake. And I mean, that was just typical Norm. Norm's, you know, that's typical Norm. You know, it was like, uh, you know, I think Andy Caceres said a story in his funeral about, you know, um, every time, you know, Andy was a, was, a, was a health freak, so he never ate anything fattening. So he would just eat pancakes just dry. So Norm would always be like, hey, man, can I have your syrup? Can I have that butter? <laughs> so that was Norm. And uh, if you went to Norm and said, hey, man, I had a bad day. I mean, I'm just used to that. And he's like, man, let's go eat. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was his way to, to, to get over some stress and talk about stuff. It was over like a really good juicy hamburger. How tall was he? Gosh, 6'5", maybe? How much do you, you think he weighed? Three. So, probably 280, 300. Yeah. Um, and I think I, that's kind of one of the teaching points that we, that we, that we push now, especially Matt who now teaches narcotics and stuff like that. Um, you know, when you do dangerous, this job is dangerous as it is, but there's other things that you do, whether it's narcotics, um, fugitive, SWAT, you know, you want to be in shape for that moment when someone goes down because it turns into dead weight. Um, and I think the day that Nor went down, he went 300 plus sure. dead weight. And, if you talk to those officers that were out there that day, they had a hard time getting him off that doorway in front of that door because he weighed so much and you had snow and ice and all that. Take us back. Take us back to 2009 and those apartments at Wadsworth. So, first of all, let's start out. Um, I, I wasn't there. I was actually on a flight back from Mexico. Um, my grandfather had died. So, I was flying back. Um, Norman and myself had, worked, had been working this guy down there off of Wattsworth, wanting for some robberies and stuff like that. Um, they've been working all day. They get ready to go home. They get a tip about this dude being there off of Wattsworth, um, our guy. So they, so they, they do what the gang unit does. They, they got everybody. They said, hey, we got, you know, this dude. Um, I don't want to say his name. He's over there. Let's go get him. And we did, and they did what we did. Hundreds of times we, you know, they went up there, they, they, um, they found out where he was. They tried to sneaky poo on him with the, with the vehicles and the squad cars around the corner. They try to corner him in, in a parking lot. And he does this super Spider-Man where he like climbs over like a flight of stairs, jumps over, you know, lands on a hood, flips over that and runs into an apartment. Um, they, they went to the apartment. Um, and then, you know, some guys went to the back. Um, Mario Gomez and Norm go to the front. They start knocking on the door. Um, they conduct, they do a ruse. Somebody opens a door. Tell us what a ruse is for our listeners out there that may not know. So a ruse is where you just tell them, you know, hey, this is, you know, so-and-so, just to see if they would open the door and see who it is. Like other than police, right? Yeah. Okay. Hey, it's, hey, it's, you know, it's red. 
you know. Um, and they opened the door. Um, they immediately shut it. Um, they tried to make entry into it, and some. Um, I think the first round went out through the door. Um, then the second one hit in the hit Norma in the, in the face. Um, chaos, obviously, then ensues. Um, they try to get Norm off the door, off the uh, off the X, as we call it, right? Um, granted, it had been snowing, icy, a couple of days before. Um, Coach Josh knows he was in SWAT at the time. He'll tell you how the squad cars were sliding everywhere. He had to go out there. He goes down as they're all trying to pull Norm um, because he's now 300 pounds, dead weight. Um, they get their eyes away from the door, and the door opens again, and a, another guy, someone shoots like two rounds towards the ground. Um, Craig Redden sees it, and he shoots back toward, through the door, misses the guy. Um, they get Norm out of there, around the corner, start trying to do some first aid, um, and then it's it's chaos. It's confusion, um, what just happened, what's going on. Um, get on the radio. Obviously, we used to work off Channel 11, I think, at the time, or 9, Channel 9, um, and now we're going to 7 and trying to figure out where we are. Um, there were some mistakes that were made that day. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it. We, we, there's some stuff that mistakes that we made, but when you do that job for so long and you get comfortable with it, um, at the end of the day, we got complacent and, um, yeah, um, that happened. Um, for me, I was on six thirty-five headed home. My dad, had, um, Somebody just picked us up. I don't remember who. I remember just being in, my, in one of the vehicles. Um, I get a call from Tina Schultz, Chief Schultz. Tells me just what happened, and I'm just like, just fucking give me the Baylor. Just, so my dad hauls ass to Baylor. I remember getting there, and, you know, they're all there. And they put us in this room, and it's it's kind of weird just when you think about it. Um, you're in a room. It's got, like, a, some glass and stuff, and... You knew the news was coming just because what they said they saw out there, you know, Tina and all them. Tina rode in the ambulance with him. She was telling me what all happened and what he, his state at the time. Um, and by that time, the rest of the gang unit that wasn't there gets sent to the hospital. And George Aranen came in, Sergeant Aranen then came in and told us that Norm had died. And uh, that was tough. That was that was tough, um, and it was it was it was tough for me in so many different ways. Um, number one is, man, I just lost like one of the mentors that I ever had on this department. You know, I I looked up to Norm. I modeled my interview skills after Norm. Um, uh, and a lot of stuff after what he did, you know, the way he carried himself. And that was tough to do, you know. And as a teammate, from being in an environment where you're a team, um, I felt like I failed the gang unit because I wasn't there. Um, I love the adrenaline. You guys know it. I mean, we're Southeast. We'd sneak up on people, you know, from an alley, from a distance, and 
nothing was funner than chasing a dude and running an apartment and you're just crashing it, you know, and having a big old battle. And right behind you is Joe and Pat and Misty and everyone else. And it's just, it's the battle rattle. Um, and a day, I feel like the day that I should have been there, I wasn't. Um, I liked going up to the door. That's kind of one of the reasons why I went to SWAT. Um, you know, I, I liked going up to the door and, and uh, I think I should have been there with Mario because Mario was my partner. And at my time in Southeast, um, so I felt like I felt them by not being there. Obviously, that's not a feeling that somebody can take from you. Uh, we all have our, you know, the way we personally feel about whether our presence, when we're not somewhere, or whether we made a mistake or what have you. But, but before we transition into your next part of your career, I think that uh, you you mentioned Norm was your biggest mentor. And I wasn't in the gang unit, but the two of you can probably attest that he was probably several people's mentors, right, Matt? Oh, yeah, for sure. yeah, I mean, he was, I believe there's, uh, and I, I think we mentioned this in another podcast, but I think there's a, a part of your career, and it's probably not till the latter part of your career that you realize where your service lies and maybe sometimes where your service, you, you, you really don't recognize what your servitude is. But from everything I've I've known or have heard about, norm that was his service you know that was his job you know he he molded and sculpted several of you i know a lot of people that came out of the gang unit then when it was as large as it was that that are phenomenal police officers whether they were that way before they got in there or afterwards but it's probably safe to say that that norm and everybody else is just not him but the environment that's created when you have an individual such as that or when you have a group that's like that but it takes a leader of a group to create that, right? If you could have disarray and have a bunch of people that love their job and have not one single leader or one person that people listen to and look up to, in that place would be a fucking disaster, you know? Yeah. So. I think the unique thing, too, that, that we always stress was, and the gang of man, we, we got along great. You know, it you know it wouldn't be, you could sit there and have a just a, just sort of a, knockout drag out fight with you know i think one time me jermaine walls and myself you know had an argument in the office about something and um mentors you know hour and a half later he's calling for some l down at channel seven and man i'm hauling ass from northeast dallas to south south oak cliff to go help him why because he's my teammate i don't care what happened an hour an hour and a half ago man that's that's water under the bridge i, I already forgot about that some you know if, if jermaine needs me i'm coming you know and we all went and Everybody went, so we didn't we didn't dwell on those things. We, you know, like any other team, you, you have, you're gonna have your arguments, your disagreements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, yeah, I think with Norm, it's always gonna be. Um, well, here's your glue, y- unique. You know, and he 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 sculpted y'all, and I obviously you've taken something from him. Matt's taken something from him. I, I mean, if we lined up everybody in the gang unit that was with you at the time, they would all have something very positive to say about Norm. Even people outside the gang unit would have something very positive to say about Norm. It was just his character. It was just his person. It was just his demeanor, right? And uh, when you look back at that, you think of the blessing you had with being, you know, having to work with an individual like that and learn from a person like that and taking his death into consideration. When he died, uh, what... What did that spark in you? Did that spark something? Did that did that put you drive? Like say, well, okay, well, I've learned this, so it's time for me to push this forward. Uh, 
obviously we grieve, but there is something inside you, I think, that, that kind of moved you and probably a lot of you. It did. Um, you know, myself and Tina were tasked with, with um, being at the funeral home, um, different shifts and stuff. And I remember one shift they were trying to put his class A's on him and his, and his ribbons on him. And the, the staff came in and was like, hey, we don't know where, the, where this stuff goes. Can you put it on him? And I remember Tina and myself going back there. And uh, putting his ribbons on him, his badge. And just looking at him. And I remember telling myself and telling him, man, that I love them. I thanked them for everything that he taught me. And I promised him that I would be the best cop that I could possibly be after that. Um, so after that, that day, which was, golly, man, that was one of the most beautiful funerals I'd ever been to. You know, the honor guard did them right. Um, the way they did it, it was like a Marine-style funeral. Um, he was a former Marine himself. Well, he was a Marine, right? They had this saying, like, once a Marine, always a Marine. He was a Marine. Um, after that, uh, I told myself that I would I would do the best. Um, so we went back to the gang unit, and um, we started doing stuff that we, you know, would do again. But I was a little safer than what I did before, um, the way that I did things. And I knew that if I wanted to be really good at being safe then I had to find somewhere where I, where I could learn that craft and that was on the SWAT team. So 2010 is when you came over to SWAT? Yes sir. Yeah, I remember that. Misty and I were still there. Matt, you were, did you come over there yet? Nope, I was still in narcotics. That's right, we were still running your warrants, weren't we? Yeah, I was in the throes of doing the Damn right. Stuff. Yeah, he was, he was rolling around still in that Harley, man, laughing at, laughing at me, telling me, man, they, they got you. They're, they're calling you in the middle of the night. They got you. I'm, they I'll got be, you. I'll be thinking about you on a mother's bike. Here he came again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we tra we transitioned into your uh, your SWAT career, and uh, you went over there to work underneath your, your pseudo-father. So... <laughs> Go ahead and roll with that. Let's go into that. Um, you guys had some openings in the SWAT team, and I knew that that's if I wanted to get better at that at that craft, that tactic, that's where I needed to go. Um, there's an opening um, uh, by luck in um, Thomas Seibel's squad. Um, and I've known Seibel for years. I think I became friends with him when I was about 14 years old. Actually, when I was a police explorer, um, he actually grew. He actually lived one seat over from me. Did he have you working off-duty jobs then? No. <laughs> what at fourteen? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Mijo, I hire you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, Sorry, let's not let's going. not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> but his car did get paid off in two years. Uh, I hope um, so I, I became good friends with Cybo. Um, you know, he he uh, he. Yeah, another another guy, another super, another officer taught me a lot. He was really good as a street cop. Um, uh, definitely taught me to defend myself. He's a former Golden Gloves himself. Taught me how to box. Um, I think if Misty, 
you know, I think he, he ran Misty through the ringer a couple times when, uh, when she was training. Um, so I tried out for the SWAT team. Um, I got myself ready. I think we were all, I was somewhat in shape from being a, being a gang unit trunk monkey. Um, then I went over there and, um, started that, that path. Um, SWAT for me was very hard to grasp at first. It really was. Um, number one is I was never a, like a big gun guy. Um, just because from everything you'd seen on the streets and stuff. So, um, my first full exposure to guns was actually in the academy. So that's when I kind of picked up and I was an okay shooter in the gang unit. We were given more time to the actual gang unit activity than actually just working on our go-to thing, which is I had to learn when I got to SWAT. But SWAT was not an easy thing for me. Um, I had to learn a lot. Um, it was very hard. But that's when I knew Misty from Southeast. She was in my sister squad. But I leaned a lot on her. And then, um, obviously, your squad from the training side aspect of it, um, Tim Houston, you, I learned a lot from you guys. Um, but as far as being a teammate on the SWAT team, man, I could not have gone to a more suitable squad than the one that I went to, the 30s, the dirty 30s. The characters there were in all directions, you know, from, you know, my squad leader, Pup, who's just big black guy, laid back. You know, he's not about drama. He's just very chill. Rossi, who's basically like a bull. You know, Jerry Huante, you know, if he's not yelling at you, he's, he's teaching you really cool stuff. Um, Rob Hamilton, the jack of all trades. I don't think there's anything that Rob cannot do. Webb, who they should probably make Rob a saint because I'm sorry, they should make Webb a saint just because as much time as he spent with me on the range to make sure that I was squared away to be on a SWAT team. Um, and then the, uh, Lee Allen and uh, Kevin Jackson are negotiators who then I ended up taking some of the negotiation side for being a Spanish speaker, what they taught me. So, the 30s, I, I, I loved it. I loved my, I was always in the 30s my whole time there. Um, but it was hard to learn that craft. You're not going to learn that SWAT stuff in six months unless you're, unless you're coming straight out of the, the SEAL teams or something, I would imagine. But for me, I had, a, I had a hard time getting it down, the tactics, the movements. Got yelled at a lot. But, some, but, but you, make, you, you, make some, you make some accomplishments and some, some good stuff, some good strides. I mean, um, I think you all remember, man, six months, you get your patch, and you're like, hell yeah, you know, I made it. You get a patch, um, and then you're still, but you're still new. You know, you're still the, you're still the, the young guy learning. You're still the guy stuck with all the paperwork at the, at the end of a warrant. He's drawing everything up. And then I guess and the big compliment then is when you start, when you start being actually on the stack, you know, and you start running in the stack. And then I think when you feel like you, the ultimate is when you run point or two up there, get up to that front door. That's kind of where you feel like, okay, uh, this is this is pretty badass. This is I worked my way up to this, but in the meantime, to work your way up there, there was a lot you had to do, um, a lot of work. I always kind of marveled at the way Misty and Chris Webb worked the pry and and Rob Hamilton. It was amazing to watch them work a pry. I thought slamming was easy because the way Jerry Huante would do it. <laughs> You know, it was, it, but it, it's not just about having arms. 
it's there's a finesse to it there's hips that come into play there's there's everything core strength i think some of the best slammers that i saw in swat were guys who actually played baseball or were really good at golf uh rick martinez who played baseball your one of your squad mates yeah he's played baseball i think at saint mary's he was really good at slam because he used he didn't he didn't use his arms he used his core he used his hips to just like he would swing a bat um, so they, he made it look easy. Jerry would use his hips and his arms and his and his uh, Tasmanian devil voice <laughs> to get in the door. Yeah, the aerodynamic head. Yeah, aerodynamic, <laughs> yeah. Um, so everybody on that, on that squad was unique in itself, and it was it was fun to be in that squad. My time in SWAT was amazing. I learned a lot of stuff. I too am one of those um, Lieutenant Dan Calasanto's recipients that I learned a lot from this from. Dan Calasanto. I mean a lot, and the, and his and his team, the Garland SWAT guys. Um, I would say seventy five percent of my schools were in Garland. Ninety five percent of my ass chewing into other schools was from Garland. But I, I think at the end of the day, I learned a lot. You know, going back and running stuff with them, I earned their respect. I earned the respect from the the guys on the on the Dallas SWAT team and all that. And there's stuff that you do over there that you know. You'll will never be able you'll you'll never get that training again. Some of that training was just top notch. Some of the best shooters in the world. Some of the best special forces operators in the world. Um, you know, my explosive breaching introduction from you was amazing. I don't know how the hell you did the math in your head. You know, I had to do the math, but I like the way you 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 taught me explosive breaching. Yeah, I I I took a you know took a liking to that. From Misty, you know, one thing I took from Misty was um, I remember you first telling me, be low to your squad and don't fuck your sister squad. <laughs> <laughs> but, screw, think, but screw the other unit. But he yeah, didn't mean yeah. that literally. It happened all the right. time. Yeah, but don't worry about the ten- <laughs> Don't mess with E-unit. Yeah, They're don't worry about E-unit. Let, let us yeah, alone. Don't just shit on that. Um, <laughs> changed when I got there. Yeah. <laughs> but that was one thing that... um. That Missy taught me. I, I stayed low to the 30s, and and um and I, I try not to fuck the 40s. Um, and uh, I I did learn a lot from from Misty and and those guys too. When when I wasn't uh, training with my guys, I would I would scoot over to the 40s and and train with them. And um, there's a lot of guys over there that that I that I learned a lot from too. So really, everyone I I could name all 60 guys. Misty. Hell, even Lieutenant Mitch Boyle, who taught me how to run a command post, you know, it was it was amazing. I learned so much I from everybody. Like She's a great commander. She was great. She was so hands off, but you knew when you really pissed her off because she yeah, would, she would let you know. Yeah, it, it didn't happen very often, but somehow we got one thing unique about people like her. I got um, the chewing. Yeah, <laughs> didn't even do it, but I got the chewing. I was like, okay. One thing unique about her and some of the other, even the command staff that we worked, when we were in a gang unit. Um. Their their old school mentality was um, like we were their kids and they were the parent and you didn't get on to their kid without the parent being there and if they did there was there was a wrath there was there was a wrath coming um, the sergeant of gangers were like that Charlie Cato um, Santos Cadena gosh the, all the lieutenants that were in a gang unit when I was there were just were just really good um, Tammy Elsey that. If you if you came after us in the gang unit and did not let them know they were gonna come after you. I don't know how many times Cato went up to Kunkel's office dragging some lieutenant that just talked crazy to us. He was like, You're not gonna talk to my guys like that. And that's 
that says a lot for the supervisor to do that. I think uh, so as just a personal observation, this obviously no knock on you because you're a great officer before you got there, but when you see, when you're in SWAT, and I'm, as Misty would know, she was there longer than I, but it's funny when you see somebody when they first come in and start and then you see them later on down the road and the maturity level and the things that are serious, they're serious to you, but you've already digested probably 15 things before, you know, the last time you were just looking at one, like, what do I do with this? And then, <laughs> you know, it's just the mature operator or the mature officer that sits there and looks at everything and digests everything. And I, I think that's, uh, it's not funny, but it's comical in a sense because I still remember when you first came over, I was there for probably two more years before I promoted and left. But when I came back, I could see a big difference in you. And then uh, just before you left, I remember you were on something. I don't remember what it was, but we were talking about something, and I was just like, "Man, it's just so it's so funny to see the transition of you are now the one of the senior people, one of the senior operators, and just the growth. Yeah, your growth is just yeah. the experience level. But yeah, it was just it was just different. I, I forget what it was. I was somewhere, and one of your new guys were doing something, and you were like, "Oh, yeah, you know, you always gotta do that." And I was like, "Man, I remember when you were because the '30s weren't." Uh, they, well, first of all, most people don't know, when I came back as a supervisor, you know how we were in our pre-briefs and the joking and the heckling and the picking on each other and stuff? Well, going out into the real world and then coming back to our imaginary world, and then there were three officers that came in for a pre-brief, and, man, it was Larry and someone else going at it with those things going back and forth, and I had to break on. I was like, whoa, whoa hold on. Hey, can you three leave the room? And I had to remind everybody, hey, you can't. These people don't understand this. You know, all these officers aren't, like, weird and crazy like us where we just accept that. But, yeah, you know, our graveyard always, humor was a little twisted. It was twisted, <laughs> but it it was fun, and it kept us all in line. And, it, and it's actually just a, a relief. But, yeah, it was really – it's always fun to see, you know, when people, their different paths or where they mature in those levels and like that. Not that I was – a great individual over there but just seeing it from a start to a finish you know like i see chris nielsen now and i see him i see him as before he was this millennial wore, he wore me out man i was like what is wrong with this kid you know, oh, that's right you were his son he can't he could can't get shit and now he's you know it's like oh it's only senior guys he's yeah. squared away at what Running. he's doing you know yeah. and it's like it's just funny to see the evolution of that but yeah that was good to see when when uh before you made your exit from there just the what what you brought what you delivered and what you had. Um. Yeah. You're such an inspiration. And I, I hate it that an injury had to inspire people, but my God, you just ran a half marathon. I don't know how you do anything on that leg. And it's just amazing <laughs> to me. And I mean, you didn't take any time off, really. You were back in it somehow, some way, mentally and physically. Tell us, tell us about it. Okay, so um, November 2017, um, we came in on a Saturday to run a warrant. Um, it was like this big push that the current chief had at the time. We were going to be hitting like South Central really hard. So Narcotics had made some buys um, at this apartment on Bonnie View. They said, hey, you know, there may be some AKs. You know, we've we seen some AKs and stuff like that, some rifles up there and stuff like that. Some some bad dudes might be up there. So um, just head on a swivel, be careful. All right. Um, because it was on a second floor landing, the way the, um, right there at 3000 Bonnie View, 
um, you know, those same crappy apartments. Um, the way it's structured um, at the time, Sergeant Wolverton had said, hey, you know, you bring the gas and let's lethal. So, you know, like you, you and me, Misty, both are 40 mil operators. Um, so I, I had a backpack full of gas and, you know, canisters and all that in case we had to lock it down or get shots fired that we could get from a distance from the second floor and still get gas and stuff in there from a distance because of the, the layout of the apartment. So I had a backpack. I was way in the back of the stack. Um, I remember going up, you know, kind of, I'm in the back, so I'm trying to catch up. So I got both hands on the rails trying to run up this thing. We get in there. There's a bunch of people in there. Everybody's throwing people on the ground. Um, it's myself and Sergeant Wolverton. They're like in the living room, kitchen area. Um, I tell him if he wants me to clear the balcony. He says, yeah, go ahead. So I go to open the door. I move a couch out of the way because it's blocking the door. So I move the couch out of the way, open the door. You know, I thought it was a big enough gap. Um, so knowing that it's a small gap and I couldn't get my rifle through, I went ahead and dropped my rifle down. I pulled out my pistol, um, and I went to go through that doorway. Well, I ended up getting wedged between the doorway and the door frame. Um, not a big deal, right? I mean, it, it's happened before you get wedged in, you kind of push through and you kind of pinball your way through. Um, when I did that the second time. Um, I just heard what sounded like three automatic gunfire, gunshots, like automatic fire. Kind of stunned me a little bit because we didn't carry automatics anymore, you know. We, uh, we just carried semis, semi-auto. So I kind of looked at Wolverton. Wolverton's looking around. We're trying to figure out where he came. And then I look down like, towards that doorway, and I see a bunch of, like, little pellets of red and blue on that door. And then I look down at my left leg. My left leg looks like the scene of the cover of Iron Maiden on the Time Traveler. <laughs> I mean, it is just out there. I can see like my... Yeah, I mean, it immediately went to that. Um, so, of course, you know, in your head, I'm like, fuck. Immediately, like, the training kicks in, right? Like, Matt, we, we've all done it. The, the training just kicks in just like it becomes second nature. So I knew... I knew either something had happened, either I just got shot at from somebody or something happened, and I go look to my rifle, and it's on fire. So I immediately put that on safe. I actually was able to walk for a little bit and get down on the ground by the couch. And, um, and I remember going to this course in San Francisco. It's called the Urban Shield, and we did this med stop, and it was taught by this uh, Air Force PJ pararescue guy. Um, I wish I knew his name. If I, if I could, man, I'd go shake his hand because he – you know, that crash course of tourniquet saved my life. But he told us, you know, keep a tourniquet, your your first tourniquet where you can see it. So immediately knew where it was. I grabbed it, pulled it out, started working on it, um, started setting it up and everything. By that time, um, everybody else kind of figured out what just had just happened. I put my rifle down, I'm on the ground, um, and I start putting it on. And then immediately I Borchard and uh, Jimmy Borchard and uh, Kent Wolverton, Sergeant Wolverton, come over and start finishing up, putting out the rest of that, you know, that, um, that tourniquet. And it, it turns to a little bit of a chaos, right? Cause we got guys on the ground, suspects on the ground. We've got, got me over here. Make just, I just made a mess and we're trying to, you know, get myself stabilized and all that in my leg. Um, luckily, uh, doc Alex, Alex Eastman was there. He's down at the bottom. So they're calling for him to come up. I'm there in the living room still. Um, and then by now it's, you know, they're getting everybody out. 
And um, in my mind, it's like when I was putting on the tourniquet, a couple of things ran through my mind. First of all, um, when I got to SWAT and I started doing that stuff, I, I mentally, one thing that I did not do when I was in a gang, like I mentally prepared myself for whenever I would get shot. Um, and that's one thing that I did learn from several operators, not the if, but the when, especially from, uh, he's a major now, Mark Villarreal. Yeah, I remember he saying that. Now, it's not if you get shot, it's when you get shot. Tim Houston took a big, you know, drove that point. So I knew, I'm like, well, this is it, All right? Just got shot. So start putting on the tourniquet. Um, so I'm fighting the shock that's trying to set in because your body's starting to shake a little bit and you're fighting through that. Second, I'm trying to fight the, the thoughts in my head of, Am I going to die? Am I not? Am I not going to get to see my kids? Am I going to say bye to Lisa or, or what? Um, I knew one thing was certain was that two things. I was not going to die on the same fucking down the street from where Norm died. Refused to, to have that happen. And the second was I was going to get to the hospital and say bye to Lisa and the kids. If that was going to happen. Um... So that mindset then was what's going through my mind. So I became, it turned into fight mode, fight mode. Like, I got to make it to the hospital. I got to make it to the hospital. So, you know, it's funny because there's like a thousand funny stories now that come out of that whole thing between me asking, you know, Rob, hey, how does my leg look? And he makes this just hellacious <laughs> face, just, you know, like, what, what the hell? Um you know, to not the, right, not the right thing to do. No, no, not the right thing to do. To the firemen who couldn't find the typical thirties. Yeah, typical thirties. Even messing with you when you're shot. <laughs> to the yeah. To the uh, to when the ambulance, when the ambulance guy couldn't find the fentanyl, and Eastman had to use his, and then he hands him one, and the valve breaks, and he, Eastman doesn't have a gloves on. He's like, I'm supposed to die from this, and um. God, there's just so many funny stories. I felt like every, we hit every pothole in Oak Cliff all the way to Parkland in that ambulance, and my leg was just bouncing around. Um, oh, plenty of those. Yeah. Um, so we get there, you know, uh, uh, the fentanyl help. I was able to sit up and, and talk to my wife, tell her to meet us at Parkland, and God bless her, man. She's a trooper. She picked up the kids from soccer and, and went to Parkland. Um, she's, she's great. Um, kids are there. And all that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the funny one was, you know, Eastman is in there. First of all, he's in his BDUs, you know, SWAT gear and all that. And the kids are like, oh, this is guys in the SWAT gear. Next thing you know, they turn around and here's Eastman now. He's got like a long white coat on. And he's like, <laughs> well, I'm actually going to operate on your, on, your, on your dad here in a few minutes in the back. And they're just like, oh, my gosh, this dude likes is on the SWAT team and he's a doctor. Wow. Um, so that was, that was pretty comical to see that. Um, and then that started the journey. I mean, I, I, they took me to the back, and, and um, I basically uh, lost like 30% of muscle and tissue from the three rounds. It basically filleted the top part of what, what, what is your shin, your shin muscle, your shin, where you get your shin splints. Cool, so you don't have shin splints anymore. I still kind of do now. Yeah, it is a plus. It is a plus. So just to clarify, it bump fired, right? The, it, your own rifle, it did bump fired. It got hung on the door, some equipment. It, it, we believe, um, and you know, like I said, I took it to Rob, who's a, the, there's something he he re, 
things that got caught on one of the lanyards that was on my um, mag carriers caused a bump fire. Caused those three rounds because it's hanging down, it just caused it just a bump yeah. like that. It just cycled uh, off its own recoil and gravity, weight of the rifle. Yeah. And so on. Then we could think why it would sound like a full auto, you know, just because it's a bump fire. Yep. Now you hit on the nail. That's that's basically what the only thing we could think of is like that. Um, I get wheeled in, and uh, I end up having about eight different surgeries on it, um, and it's mostly every other day they would go in there and they would kind of clean around the muscles and make their. Um, they don't say they regrow. They kind of say they regenerate. So each muscle throughout your body kind of knows there's a job that's a function that's not working in that part of the body. So it starts trying to work its way till they till they can connect, and then they start working each other, working with each other. So that was kind of the way it was explained to me that they were cleaning it out to let these muscles keep regenerating until they can all meet and start you know having to function again. They put this, it's like, a, it's like a cow skin on it. It's like a wound vac that just sat over it just to trick the body into believing that there is still skin there when there really is just a big wound um, with bandages just to let the body keep healing on its own. It's amazing what the body does. It's, obviously, I didn't take my body for granted until, you know, I dang near blew my leg off. You know, I started looking into it and reading and, you have time at the hospital now because you're just sitting in the, you know, in a room. But I, the muscles were just regenerating on their own. And every every surgery, I'd go in and clean it up. I went home, and about a week later, I went back for a checkup, and they went to take the wound, the wound off. And um, there's another doctor, Doc Benitez, and he's like, "Hey, it's infected." And I was like, "Wait, it's what?" He's like, "It's infected." So I thought, well, give me some pills and get sent home. And he's like, no, they're going to give you, they got to get you in the back real quick. Start giving some antibiotics. So immediately got wheeled into the back. Um, they had to go in there and redo, redo the way my leg, they actually took another part of my leg, the muscles from there. And they what's called a muscle flap where they move muscles to the front towards where the wound is to how, to try to accelerate the healing on it and accelerate the healing on like where the infection was. Um, it's kind of hard to describe the medical terms of it because I'm not a big medical term guy, but the best thing I could describe it, um, if you guys ever see that Project 11, I think it's the one about the Alex Smith, the quarterback, Yeah. his, his, his recovery, his injury, um, basically I went through that because you remember they treated his leg like, like a gunshot wound. And I think he went to San Antonio and worked with those doctors that were there. Basically, that's kind of what happened to me you know, in a, in a sense. I, I watched that and I, I took from it and you said it, it's amazing what the body will do. I find it amazing what the mind will do mentally. How did you push through the, it, it was hard a little bit. Um, you know, um, in the first couple of days I was pretty pissed just because it happened. And I felt again, you feel like a failure. you like, you feel like you failed your guys. Like, how the hell does this happen? What does it happen to me? Blah, blah, blah. Um, then uh, I think it was Sunday night, Monday night. Scott McDonald came to visit, you know. And um, I think he knew. He, he knew that I was starting to kind of go to a dark place. So he said, hey, how you feel? I feel fine. He's like, no, how you feel, feel? And I was like, meh. 
kind of told him how I felt. And he's like, there's a guy I want you to talk to. So I'm like, yeah, sure. And he's like, he, he went through what you went through. And he's a good dude. All right. Passed me on this guy. He's a SEAL Team 6 guy. My dog handler's name was Jimmy Hatch. Um, you know, not to go into particulars about Jimmy Hatch, but he's a hero in his own in his own field with with the uh, with the SEAL teams and Team Six. Um, I had a couple conversations with him. He's a great guy, golly. He was actually injured um, during the Bo Bertle rescue mission. He took an AK-47 round to his leg, shattered it, and it basically ended his career. From other podcasts that I've heard, there's his name is. His name is written. His name is mentioned in several books. He's just a. He was a great operator. Just one of those. One of those great operating dudes in that community. And we talked, and uh, he kept my mind in check. Uh, as far as the going to the depression part, Jimmy kept it in check. He really did, and that built my mindset for making making a comeback. What did he say to you, or what what piece of his advice? really hit home like give us an example he told me to take everything in chapters and not try to tackle it all at once he said finish what's in front of you get that chapter and then go to the next one so it, it made sense to me Ch- make the chapters the what, chapter what was part. that first chapter that you had to complete <laughs> so i got hurt early saturday morning <clears throat> Saturday evening, Doc Eastman comes back with his wife, who's also a doctor, and they're checking up on me and my wife's there and all that. And, and um, he's like, hey, tomorrow I'm going to have the the uh, physical therapist come up here and, and uh, try to get you to start trying to walk again. And I'm like, dude, did you not see my leg? I mean, it looks like fajita meat. You know, how am I supposed to walk? It looks like a shark. Literally <laughs> just took a so, huge hunk out of your leg. Yeah, yeah. So some of the guys in the SEAL community did say that I should tell about it's a shark bite. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it would fly in Dallas, Texas, but that's right. Yeah, I've, some, some people, I, uh, I've actually been in the gym where people stare at it, and I'm like, I got bit by a shark, and they kind of walked off like, oh, my God. Um, but uh, that night, Eastman's like, hey, I'm going to have the physical therapist come by. And I'm like, dude, are you serious? And he's like, I mean, if you're a bad motherfucker, you'll, you'll try to walk. I mean, that's the last thing you want to tell a SWAT guy, right? It's like, man, hold I'll this. Yeah, hold this beer. Watch this. Um, and she did. She did come the next. She she came the next the next day. She brought some crutches and a walker, and I think uh, Garrett Helen, Jerry Marshall Milligan, two other really good dudes um, that were in the 30s by then, um, were there. Um, and uh, we, you know, I got high on morphine, um, and I tried the crutch, and I was like, uh, yeah, no, no. Um, so then we tried the the the, the walker. And I think it was Marshall that that just belt on me around, and she was like, "Hey, if he falls, it, you got to grab him." So I think it was Marshall. I think it was one of those two, and the other one was like on the side, just kind of pushing me. And in typical um, SWAT fashion, you push each other. And I made a little loop in the room, you know. And she was like, "Hey, when do you want to come back?" And I was like, "Come back tomorrow." I said, "Come back every day, whenever you can. I want to. I want to walk." Are you sure? I said, yeah, I want to walk. I said, I want, I want to walk out of here. So I made the goal. The first chapter was to walk out of Parkland. Get out of the hospital. I mean, I want to go home. That was the first goal. Um, and one thing, too, you know, to touch, go back to that, how important and great the, the uh, SWAT team was. There was a SWAT team guy with me the whole time I was there. 24 hours a day, the whole time I was there. There was not, I mean, unless some 
I think there was a call out there how to go. But, I mean, the majority of the time somebody was there, whether it was from the, the equipment support side to the operator, somebody was always there even overnight. You know, when I talked to Jimmy Hatch and I told him about that, he said, hey, man, that's, that's, some, that's some team shit right there. He, he said it like that. You know, so that was a big compliment, I thought, to our SWAT team. The fact that these dudes would take time out of their day to sit with me when they could be doing whatever, shooting the old course, the whatever you, we would do, to sit there with me and make sure that my family, whatever they needed, um, whatever had to get done. I think uh, my best meal was probably Renfro's. He brought me a taquito. <laughs> He, oh man, those chips and hot sauce are like the greatest. But I had it all from Dion's donuts to, you know, I mean, you name it. I mean, they knew that the hospital food was killing me. And they would call like before their shift like, hey, man, I'm coming in. I got the three o'clock. What do you, what can I get you? You want Jimmy John's? You want pizza? I mean, I, I ate it all. But man, those guys were all there. And I love every single one of those guys for that. It was great. You finally get healed up. You get out of the hospital. What's the next transition for you? You. You go back to full duty. What did you do? Did you end up? So once I got home and, and we're, my legs started healing a lot faster mm-hmm. than what they thought. They thought it would be 10 to 12 months. Maybe they thought 8 to 10. I think Eastman told me that. And then I set my goal to get there before 8. I started doing my rehab at the Tom Landry Center. And it was it was pretty painful because my leg was dormant. I had kind of dropped foot. And I thought I was going to have to medically retire because I'm going to be able to, first of all, more than anything, I had to draw foot. So I'm like, man, I'm not going to be able to run with my kids anymore. Man, this is going to suck. And then that was one of those deals that Jimmy did talk about chapter. So that was another chapter, right, is getting back home to run with my kids um, and be home life. But I just dropped foot. Like, I'd walk and I'd just knock over something on my, or trim myself over walking with it. So I was like, God, this is frustrating. I got to the tolerance and your foot's just dormant. We got to wake it up, but it's going to hurt. And I'm like, oh, my God, it, it hurts so bad. And, I, you know, people ask me all the time, what, which part of this whole thing hurt the worst? I really don't know whether it was the gunshot, the skin graft, or that day at Tom Landry when they were just jamming my foot left and right up and down to wake up those muscles. Because I was in tears. It was like I thought I was being tortured. But they did tell me, if you want to go back to where you, you want to go back to the SWAT team, we got we to gotta cross this bridge here. So I mentally prepared myself for that um i did that i worked on that until i got strong enough and then you know i could pass all their tests and then i um i then brought the um strapman gave me the list of the our swap pt standards i said here i want to go back to the swap team i want to pass the pt test here's here's the standards right here and we went from every single sit-ups push-ups the vertical jump everything to the running and i started running in the pool there at the tom landry center to the track um, working on my foot, working on my gait, working on my step, working on my stride. The uh, PT guy that I had was incredible. He he was working on getting his license, taking his test, and he wanted to go work at Walter Reed with w- wounded soldiers. So I was kind of like his dream. I know he was my dream too because we would do these exercises and I would tell him what work would did it, and then I'd go home and do them. So that also helped accelerate my, my recovery, my time at home that I put into work to, to get back. So, yeah, that, that definitely got me back. I remember, I remember having several conversations with you during that process on the phone. And I think you were at Love Field, right? I think we would 
I'd wake you up in the middle of the night. Yeah. Or you were up in the middle of the well, night. No, I was probably working in the middle of the night. You, you yeah, probably woke what, me up while I was working. That's what it yeah. was because you were like, <laughs> yeah. When I couldn't but, sleep because of all yeah. the meds, I call you and you're like, hey, man, what are you doing? You're like, oh, nothing, yeah. watching planes. We, uh, yeah, I remember having several conversations with you about that and trying to encourage you. I know that was one of your big things was that, that foot, but you pushed through it, you persevered, you closed those chapters. You just ran a half marathon, right? Yes, sir. What is that? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Two weeks ago. How do you feel after that? Feel good. Um, it's like a good accomplishment. I don't think I'll ever, ever do a full. I was, around, I was in a lot of pain already. Um, my whole left leg, from my growing calf, everything was in a lot of pain. But I got it right at two hours, um, and that was my goal. So um, it was a good accomplishment for me to, to do that. Um, I think the biggest thing for me, man, is... Um, side of that is I, I went back to the SWAT team and I still stayed there as an operator and I took the PT test with everybody else. Um, you know, that, that deal. For years. For years. Three, three, for three more years. years. Yeah, I think I took the PT test like five more times. Mm-hmm. Neat story too, I think the day that when I was going to take my test to take the test again, some of the, you know, the SWAT team guys showed up to take the test with me. Like literally take the test with me. You know, so that was neat. That's that's exactly what what the SWAT team guys do. Um, I had guys on the sideline cheering, and some guys on the track there running with me. That was a great motivator. Instead of just being the home going guy out there, at the, you know, track and everyone just staring at you, they were there yelling at me, pushing, pushing me. And like I said, I'll, I'll always love those guys for it. What what was your support during this time frame? My family, my wife. My family, my wife. Um, you know, at home, definitely all of them. My in-laws, gosh, my in-laws have been phenomenal through my SWAT career. Uh, when my wife was traveling, and I get those men I call out, you know, they'd come and watch my kids. You know, that's amazing. Everybody. I mean, my sister would finish her shift at Parkland. She's a NICU nurse. She'd come to a house, do my dressing, because um, she swore up and down she didn't want not let me get another infection. So she would come and do the dressing before her shift. You know, they worked 12-hour shifts. And then after her shift, um, my wife would walk with me when I was getting back. Dang, man, everybody. I don't, I don't think I couldn't, I couldn't, didn't. I mean, Matt visited me at home, you know, to come check up on me and stuff like that. And just, I heard that. I heard he gives good foot massages. He did. Yeah, man, it was great. I mean, he's, he's only got, yeah. I was like, you can't run now, dude. <laughs> he's like, got him. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, don't fight it. I say, I say, hey, hey, keep that gang in stuff where it is. Um, no, everybody, everybody had anyway. had a, had something. Um, you know, it was funny. Um, you know, one of the clowns is something else. Rich Chamberlain. Um, he called check up on me too. And then one day, you know, in typical Rich Chamberlain fashion, he's like, be by your phone. Okay. I'm Hang on. He said that in a pirate. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> is that in a pirate voice? <laughs> no, that's Darian. literally that's the way Rich talks oh, okay. to me. He's like, be by your phone. And I'm like, all right. Um, I was by my phone, and I, phone. I get a, I get a video, and it's a, it's a video of Marcus Luttrell. Um, Send me, like, a, an encouraging message. Wow. So it was, it was pretty cool. Um, I still have it saved on my phone. He was I, sick, wasn't he? He had the flu or something. He had the flu, said. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's pretty neat. But it was something he said at the very end um, that still that motivated me too. He said, "He said, uh, get yourself get yourself back online, 
and don't beat yourself up uh, because your, your your teammates will do that for you. And um, yeah, I didn't I didn't beat myself up. I got myself back online. And your teammates and my teammates beat me up for it. Yeah, <laughs> and it exactly. sure did. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty neat when you get when you get a, a message from somebody like that. And I I, I did also get one from Mark Wahlberg. Um, I got a real cool uh, football from Roger Staubach and Jennifer Gates. Can to come visit me? Oh, wow. So that's John Fortune, also. Wow, damn. Um, damn. I know. I know. Roll out the red carpet for Darren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was pretty neat. It was pretty it was pretty neat journey. Um, I'm definitely thankful for everybody. I, I didn't know this, but during this time period, you were still recovering, and you were at the Cathedral Guadalupe, and you saved. Mr. Heflin's life and gave him chest compressions. <laughs> I did. Um, I was at a... Darren's always somewhere where... Wow, I mean, just, yeah. just... What do we call that, a ship magnet? Is that... Yeah. Okay. I think, I, think I think that's what it is. Um, so my parents were receiving an award from the bishop at the time, and we had parked on the street, and we put coins in the parking meter, and um, I told my wife, I said, hey, right after communion, I'm going to go outside, because there's a reception right afterwards with my parents. Um, and all the recipients, I said, I'm going to go outside and put more coins in the car. So I go to communion there at the cathedral, and I go outside, and I put more coins in the in the, in the uh, meter box and everything. And I'm walking in, and right about then, there's all this commotion in the little reception place where they're supposed to have the reception. And a lady walks up, and she's like, can you get a doctor? And I was like, uh, she's like, do you? I'm like, well, ma'am, I'm a policeman. Can I help you? And she's like, like my husband's falling down, and he has a, he's not moving. Um and I got this, like, badass limp going at the time. And I kind of, you know, hobble myself over there. And I look at this poor guy, and he's kind of turning blue. And, and I'm thinking to myself, like, golly, man, I got to do something. So first thing that came into to mind was, like, okay, chest compressions. And he started doing chest compressions. And then, of course, you know, like, you're like, well, you know, we did some CPR. And so on. I was like, man, is it 15? Is it 30? Is it? Oh, Just got to do it to stay alive. Yeah, so I'm like, how about I just start chest compressions and then I'll go. So then I start doing the chest compressions and all that. And um, I'm still going and everything's like cracking. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm killing this dude. Because I hear all these ribs and bones yeah. are cracking and everything. And I'm trying to figure out like, man, am I doing the right thing? And it's turning more blue. And then I'm thinking to myself, um, now, by now there's like a group of people around me. Video um, and you probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's going to think I'm killing this poor guy. And then I remember thinking to myself, like, golly, man, I wish somebody said, man, I need some help. I said, you know what I need? I need I need, I need, a freaking defibrillator. I need a fucking defibrillator. I think that's what I need. And I turn around, and there's a nurse, off-duty nurse with a defibrillator, like, literally standing to the right of me. She's like, I'm a nurse. I have a defibrillator right here. I was like, oh, Jesus, thank God. So, you know, we take off his shirt. We put a defibrillator on, you know, and it's... You know, if you guys ever met, mess with a defibrillator, it basically gives you instructions on where mm -hmm. to put everything and all that. And, you know, hey, back away. And it, it shocked him like twice and all that. And he, he kind of started coming around a little bit. By that time, the fire department pulls up and they take in a bailer and, and he survived. He, yeah. he, he did, yeah. And, um, How many broken ribs? Did he have? 30, 30 broken ribs. <laughs> yeah, probably. Do we probably have so, that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Darian walked over with his Mr. Deeds yeah. toe and started <laughs> waddling that thing around trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> It was cracking uh, him up like a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. It did, yeah. What are you doing? Was, yeah, the heart, the heart wasn't a problem. Was the ribs, the rehab for the ribs. Um, no, that's awesome, though. It was, uh, it, it was, it was, it was wild. It was one of those deals where you're just like, oh, okay, this, 
All right, it's Jesus talking here. I just asked for a nurse and some help and a defibrillator. Here it is, just wall out of nowhere. Um, yeah, so I, I went back. I met Ron. We had a we had a lunch with the bishop and all that. And that was pretty neat wow. too. Yeah, that's awesome. that's awesome. And then 2019, officer involved shooting. I won't get into the details because we're not our two year mark. 2019, you're shooting. Can you talk about that? You were you were an active member of SWAT when that happened, right? Yes. So we. Um, we're at home and we got a call, um, you know, on our on our uh, call system to report to this police station, where we keep our to our SWAT station, which was Central Patrol at the time. We get there and we meet um, homicide, and they let us know that we're going to execute a capital murder warrant for some guys that did a murder earlier in the day. Another another Southeast legend, uh, Brian Tabor, was there. He gave us gave us information on it. We see the. He gives all the information, everything. Um, it's a very violent crew. Um, they've actually been watching them in covert vehicles. Our plainclothes guy, my plainclothes officers have been watching him and some other people. They've seen him with rifles and stuff like that. So they knew they were very dangerous from, the, from, that, from that go. They were a violent crew. Um, so their, their, uh, their best solution was to call the SWAT team. And uh, our best avenue was going around, conduct a surround and call out of the apartment they were in and just have them come out. So we, you know, just to try to get them away from the rifles and all that. My squad, we were going to take the, the uh, rear perimeter, the ch- what we call the Charlie side. And so the best way that we could do it without going to APCs, we were in a suburban and we would park and just kind of walk our way through the breezeway and just head up in a, uh, in a cover position to kind of watch the windows and stuff in case somebody tried to scoot out through there. Um, and again, I was back on that, on the 40 millimeter, in, in charge of gas and stuff in case something happens. We pull up. Uh, I could kind of hear on the radio that they're saying that it sounded like they had left before we got there, and they were, now they were coming back, and now they're, like, on foot. We're getting out of the Suburban, and um, I see my uh, – he's now he, – he's a squad leader now at the time, Rob Hamilton. He he runs and confronts one guy. I notice he's – He's got to deal with him by himself with no cover. So I run up, uh, stand in front of him, cover cover while he's doing that. As I see that, I see a second guy kind of run towards me. He sees me, and he runs the other way, actually towards the APCs where all the SWAT teams are. So I make my way towards that, try to get eyes on that back of that door and the patio. And uh, our third guy comes out from in between buildings. See him running from my left to right. Immediately see he's got a rifle. And then once again, like all the training kicked in. Matt, you said it best with your shootings and people ask about what's it like. It's like when you take that shot of peppermint snops in the cold winter and you take it and it just slowly just works through your body. You're right. He came across. We both kind of looked at each other. And uh, I knew then um, when I had that feeling come through my body like this is it. All the training of the standing in front of the target, you know, kicked in. And, you know, um, at the end of the, you know, when it's all said and done, I was the one standing. Um, and he, he went down. It was uh, it was surreal because I think I'd been in, as a witness, in other words, all standing around in about four or five other officer of all shootings, Southeast gang unit, um, SWAT, been shot at plenty of times. 
I think once you, once with you at Southeast, but I was never on the, on the, uh, actual shoot and trigger side of it. Um, so it was definitely different, but yeah, it, uh, at the end of the day, I was thankful that all that, all that Dan Calasanto yelling kicked in and, and all that training did work for that day. Yeah. And <clears throat> it, 2019, it was such a, still to this day, it's, we're so scrutinized from a social perspective. You just never know. You can be 100% justified in what you do, and you can get attacked, uh, whether media or, um, in some cases, uh, leaders mm-hmm. can uh, can attack. attack you. What kind of support did you get from this, if you could talk about it? Man, once again, SWAT team-wise, great. Great support. Guys checked up on me every day, um, checked on me that night. They all, you know, it was during the fair, so they all were like, hey, here, have my fair ticket. Go out and enjoy it, because I was off. All the officers that were there, buddies of mine, Matt, the other guys, the, the phone calls, Misty, um, Josh. I think we had some conversations again about it, um, support. You know, I think, we were, like we talked about it earlier, you know, Larry, Sergeant Larry Gordon one time when he was on the SWAT team and he said, hey, he said, hey, there's going to come a time where you're going you're gonna to need to be justified legally, socially, and administratively. And, um, he, you know, I think at the time we, we kind of laughed at Larry, and, and uh, he was right. He was so right. Legally, there were no issues, you know, administratively with the command staff at the time, there were issues. But the legal side took care of that. And socially, there's a little bit of social, a little bit of it. Um, I had some officers kind of parked in my house for a couple of days. So Larry was right. That's why you had the issues with the department. It's the social. The social aspect drives the thoughts of many people. They jump to conclusions at times. I'm not speaking for them. I wasn't part of that decision-making process or whatever it may have been. But we all know that. It's unfortunate that uh, social justice seems to be the uh, driving factor, not the fact that an individual was fleeing the home with a assault rifle, nor was it the fact that uh, there was a murder suspect, uh, you know, those things go out the window. It's what is everybody going to think about it? Well, why don't we worry about what's in front of us right now? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I it's, no, totally it's, agree. It's unfortunate, but it's fortunate that, that that's not how that turned out. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, I, th- I think the shootings before, especially like the one to Southeast, Bronco, rest in peace, um, I was there, his two shootings and um and you know the ones in SWAT and never like those we never crossed those those bridges never even mentioned um never had to um someone took care of that it's a little different now it's definitely different going uh through your injuries and recovering from your injuries from a financial uh standpoint is is there something that kind of helped you along the way yeah um First of all, the ATO, the Sisti officer, just a great, great group of people. Uh, and then other other associations also have their own version mm-hmm. of, of financial assistance. I know, like, I'm a member of the NLEO, so they also help, help me out. But, like, one of the th- things, once I got to the hospital and you get to the hospital bed, it's like, okay, how are the bills going to get paid here? Right? Because you're like, they're telling you you're going to be out of work for, like, a year at home. And I'm like, wow, okay, do, are we going to cover all these bills? Are we, you know, or what? Um, 
So the SISD also came in and, and uh, with some financial assistance first, which helped alleviate a lot of the stress. Um, anytime someone can help you financially, it's great. Second is I had the off-duty insurance. Um, the, for example, the First Responder Benefit Trust um, is one, one version that they have, you know, that the uh, DOSPE Association has, where um, if you're injured off-duty, you can get an insurance for a small amount that you pay a month. That goes a long way if you get injured because, like you know, we're all cops. We're not, we don't make a bunch of money. I mean, a lot of us do work extra jobs, side jobs to um, supplement some of our some of our income. And um, when you get injured and stuff like that, that goes a long way. It's a great plan to have as a backup when you get injured. You know, especially patrolmen, young guys. I would say go to your associations and, and look at the insurance and see what you can have because, you know, you can have a wreck. Someone can hit you on a squad car and you're, you may be out for a while. At least that insurance is peace of mind to, to, help you, to help you get through it. Yeah, you can get hurt at the gym or just out on a jog. Correct. And, and, and a lot of officers really lean on and rely on uh, additional income that's outside of what the city provides us. Yes, sir. I think through all of these incidents now I see your passion and training you I mean you are so passionate and I see you you combine with Baines and y'all do a great job putting on training is that where you're is that what's pushing you what's motivating you now yes it, it, it is um, obviously norm was, was a big driving factor to pass on you know what I know what I've you know what I've learned especially in the SWAT stuff a lot of officers see you as a as a former SWAT guy, so they got uh, questions and and some examples and want some you know can you have their you know answer their questions and you you can ask me wherever, however it, if you need me to help you I will help you as much as I can. I love working with training stuff with Baines. Um, I think Baines and me just we just work really well when it comes to training and teaching because we both have the same passion. I think. Um, you know, Baines, like myself, we learned a lot from Norm, and I think Matt knows um, that through his his experiences and what we've both have experienced and talked about, that we'd be wrong for not passing on what what we've learned and what we have now. So, anytime that anybody has has a question or wants me to help them put on a class, I'll, I'll jump I'll jump on in a heartbeat. Um, some of that is up optimistic. I mean, I, I think. Um, you set up you set a high you set a bar for any female that ever wants to come to SWAT. And it's it's pretty cool. Um pretty high too. It's a high ass bar because you're not so, even fair. <laughs> you know, I mean there's I mean, you know, I God gosh, Miss I still remember seeing you benching at one thirty five on that on that on that bench. I mean, Jesus, you know, um those pull ups you would do and help me with the O course, I mean, amazing. Um but at the same time, I've also seen you mentor females to get ready to try out for SWAT. And you, you take your own personal time. You, you go out of your way to, to hopefully have the next female go in there. And um, that's, 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 a, that's, that's a great compliment. It's one of the greatest things that I like about you. Thank you. We, we brought you on because you have so many different ways to inspire. And I've never seen your drive towards policing falter. You've always had an incredible attitude, even as you've gotten older, where a lot of people's attitude changes. 
and then you've went through the ringer with your injury, so physically, mentally, and then you've just come off that officer-involved shooting in a, in a time period where it was very controversial and you were doing your job. And so I hope that our listeners out there can take one piece or all of it from you and, and realize that you have to just keep driving and, and stay passionate about what you do. And you are such an example of that. Well, I think it's a perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for being so inspirational. Uh, I'm glad that Matt actually was able to sit in here to be part of this recording. You two guys making, as he put it, officers harder to kill is, is very important uh, for the future of Dallas Police Department and, and all departments across the country because uh, it's not easy being a, a cop right now. Thank you for your service, and I look forward to continuing our friendship, and maybe you'll come back on as a guest co-host, hopefully. <laughs> that'd, that'd be fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Darian. I appreciate thank you. you. Yeah, Darian, thank you for your service. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through No matter how far for the gold and the blue I'll never give up on you